Welcome to our classroom. In this space, we talk about education, which is inclusive of, but not limited to, what happens in schools. Education is taking place whenever and wherever we are willing to learn. I am your host, Roberto Germán, and our classroom is officially in session. In today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Kim Parker, who has been working in literacy communities with young people for more than 20 years. She has always believed in the power of literacy to normalize the high achievement of all students, especially Black, Latinx, and other students of color. Her career has included public school teaching, preparing pre-service teachers, conducting research about how to support the success of black boy readers, and delivering professional development across the country. She is currently the director of the Crimson Summer Academy at Harvard University. Kim is a co-founder of Hashtag Disrupt Text and Hashtag 31 Days IBPOC and the current president of the Black Educators Alliance of Massachusetts. With me today to discuss justice through culturally relevant teaching, Dr. Kim Park. Hey people, you can thank me now. I got a best-selling author on the platform, Kim Parker, the good doctor. Dr. Kim Parker, Kimberly N. Parker. (laughs) who published this bestseller right here literacy is liberation working toward justice through culturally relevant teaching listen folks kim is a powerhouse if you don't know now you know you got to listen to her in person I, i was blessed kim is part of hashtag disrupt text a powerful collective of women who are just out there shaking things up and, and, you know, causing people to wrestle with some discomfort around their classics and whatnot. I love it. I got to listen to Kim recently at NCTE at the National Council of Teachers of English Conference in Anaheim, California. That was my first time listening to Kim in, in person. And Kim, you have this, you have a powerful voice, you have a powerful presence, uh, and, and you 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 are one sharp cookie. You are you you on point. You know, I was listening to you. I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is this is good stuff from these amazing women. Uh and I love the way the the four of you work together. Obviously Julia wasn't there, but um witnessing you and Lorena and 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 Trisha just be so in sync uh and so passionate about the issues that you're addressing, the content that you teach. Uh, but more importantly, the people that you serve, the people that you serve. And so I appreciate you. I appreciate you. I appreciate the work that you're doing. Know that you are loved and seen um, for the impact that you are having in this world. And I'm grateful that you've taken the time to join me here in our classroom. Welcome, Kim. Thank you. That was so Warm and wonderful, Roberto. I really appreciate you. I'm happy that we could make this work. Thank you. It was all honest, Kim, even though I've been chasing you for months. (laughs) But here we are. Here we are, folks. And I I, want to center our time. There's so much that that we could talk about. And 
was thinking about like, all right, you know, where can we go here that might be revelation to some folks? And so I want to, first of all, congratulate you for, for publishing this bestseller. Thank you. Um, Literacy is liberation, working towards justice through culturally re- relevant teaching. And I want to start our conversation by asking why the focus on culturally relevant teaching? How has this guided your work? And I'm asking not for myself because I've read, you know, I've, I've read the book. Uh, I'm asking for those that haven't read the book, those who may be unfamiliar with the, your work. I think it's important for, for them to know why why this focus and why it is that culturally relevant teaching guides your work, influences your work. You know, there was so much inspiration here uh, and, and credit you know, given where credit needed to be due. So uh, I'll pause and, and let you share with us. Yeah, um, I appreciate that question, right? I I feel like so much of culturally relevant teaching and relevant pedagogy is sort of assumed, but not really known, right? I think even in my own practice, I would be like, well, this is culturally relevant pedagogy or culturally responsive teaching, Um but forgetting, right, that it's very, like there are three pretty central pillars of it that we have to be doing all three to really be doing culturally relevant teaching as Gloria Latin Billing defines it. And so I wanted first to like refresh it for myself to make sure that it was good for me and that that's still the foundation on which all of my practice stands. And that's accurate now and has been since I've been a practitioner. But then also I feel like people say that they're doing it, but they're not doing it. And so much of, you know, like Lorena's work and everyone else's work comes from that or is, you know, like drawing from that. And so I felt like, let me just start with this and then people will go where they go. So it was really important for me to understand and refresh it and to make sure I knew it and aligned with it and then um, help me. I wanted to help other people also understand that because I think we talk a lot about what we're doing, but we're not really doing it. You know, Brene Brown, you, you did cite in your book, but you didn't cite what I'm about to say. Brene Brown says, clear is kind, unclear is unkind. Hey, there it is. Right. <laughs> that's right. And so that that that's what you're doing then. That's that's good stuff. I appreciate that. I think we do need that. I think we do need to continue to revisit the differences between culturally relevant teaching, culturally responsive teaching, culturally sustaining teaching. Right. Uh, yeah. And any anything culturally and whatever you know, follows. Yeah, exactly. And I think too, that it gives us the power to be able to push back and to say like, this ain't it, right? Like what y'all saying is actually harming children instead of you all saying you're aligned with this. So, I mean, we have to know our stuff to be able to be able, I'm sorry, to be able to say like, no, right? This is not serving children um, in ways that actually get us to justice. Yeah, you talk about that notion of how we may be harming children in your book. Uh, you also talk about the the need for healing, um, healing and tr- dealing with healing and trauma um, through curriculum, through literacy and whatnot. Uh, we're not necessarily going to go there right now, but I, I do want to hear you talk about the let's, the title, of chapter three, right? The defining culturally relevant, intentional literacy communities, C R I L Cs. Um, this is good stuff. Can you provide a general overview and, and then offer a specific example of what it looks like in practice? Be, because 
I'm not sure this is a term that folks are, are commonly familiar with, and, and I think they should be. So yeah. what what is this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I was always sort of driven by the need. I mean, we are human beings, right? So we're definitely wired to, to belong to each other and to be connected to each other. And I think that I've worked mostly with Black kids for most of my educational career, and so many of them felt like they could not belong or that they didn't belong or that people, they weren't seen. Um, And to really get them to be and realize who they want to be, right, they have to feel like they matter. And so um, that is not by chance. It's not like being like, here you are in this space, get along. That just doesn't work. Um, And so we have to be intentional about what it means. We have to be intentional about addressing Um, how they got to us, right? Mostly ninth and 10th graders, if they're not reading, something has happened to them. And also I think if we're not intentional about addressing that to say, you know, like I I welcome all of you here. Um, Yes, this might've happened to you. And also that's not who you are or who you want to be, or you don't have to stay here. So there are particular practices, right? That enable kids to be able to feel like they are literacy achievers in the space, right? We have to design it. We cannot leave it to chance. So much of it has been left to chance. That's why we sort of have the current situation that we have. Um, and I think part of that really is developing a real strong reading culture where kids can read whatever they want. Um, because, right, like they've been shamed, stigmatized, prevented from reading what they've wanted probably by the time they've gotten to us. And it's happening to little kids too, right? First, second graders. Um, and so that's one solid piece of it is that we have to like protect kids reading freedom and give them the time and space to read while they are with us. We cannot leave it to anyone else, right? Intentionally creating the space, the time, the structures, the instruction, the pedagogy that helps them to see themselves Um as worthy and valuable of having really robust reading lives. How do so? How do you, or, or what do you advise for for teachers and or school leaders who perhaps they want to explore this, but they're feeling the tension? And this is coming up in a lot of my interviews because this is the reality that we're dealing with, right? So, for, for folks who are in states like the one I'm in. Right. Mm-hmm. If you're in a Florida, you're in a Texas, you're in some of these places where you're getting serious pushback. Uh, some of the pushback may be from parents. Some of it may be from your school leaders. Some of it may be, um, you know, maybe maybe some even even your colleagues. Right. Um, some of it may be on the legislative level. Yeah. What's your advice for for educators who are in those situations where like, man, I, you know, I, I want to find ways to present my learners with opportunities to to read whatever they want to read and, and encourage uh, reading that also affirms multiple identities and whatnot. But I got this real tension and, and this tension might cost me my job. And I know I'm better served being here um, or, the, or the students are, you know, better served by me being here as opposed to them replacing me with somebody who's just going to, you know, all go with the company line and like not going to expose the kids to anything and just, you know, stick to the things um, that we've been teaching for a long time, some of which may be harmful. Right. So for folks who are in those situations, what yeah. what, what do you offer them? Yeah. You know, like. I, I do not have a quick and fast solution. I know right. it's very tricky. I also know that um, I have to live with myself, right? So um, 
I just am not gonna do harm to kids. And I know that for all of those things, you know it too, we all know it, that if we are denying kids books, if we are denying them like opportunities to really like see themselves, that is not a place where I want to be, first of all. Um, and then too, I think I was working with a school last week that I said, well, where is the opposition coming from? Right? It's like a small group of people that are taking up all of the space. And so and that's, those, that's that's usually how it is. Yeah, exactly. And so I said, well, first of all, right, like you're you're focusing on like one percent of the of all of them when like ninety nine percent of your other families probably want you to be teaching these books to their kids. And so I first think that we got to like understand sort of the situation. I know that that group, that faction is really organized, right? They're very good at what they do, but also so are we, right? We are teachers. We are, we, we can plan, we can do these things, we can organize, right? I feel like we are born to organize. And if we don't, we're going to keep getting what we're getting. So I think I'm more now, I think like 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, I'd be like, I'm just going to close my door and teach. Right. Okay. So I feel like we are in a new day where we got to like open people's doors and to be like, this is what we need to do. Right. We need to work with our school department. We need to find the people. We need to work with the willing. And also like, we got to like educate folks. They haven't even read these books. All these people who are out here with these, like, don't read, don't read. They don't even read books. So I don't know, like, I'm not going to be afraid of these folks because I got to live with myself and I also have kids and my friends have kids. And so like, what kind of world do we want them to have and to inhabit? Like, I want them to be able to have critical discourse. I want them to ask critical questions. I want them to be right out there. And so if I want that for them, I want that for everybody's children, right? And the Brene Brown, courage over comfort, right? All these people selecting and choosing comfort over courage when we really got to be courageous right now. Yeah. Well, folks, we're not getting paid for shouting out Brene Brown. Just you know, I know, right? Like, no, we are not. It's just like she gives you like these tidbits that you're like, well, yes, <laughs> well, yeah, yes, yes. yes. The rumblings. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so, we Sheldon L. Akins and I recently discussed vulnerability, and I noticed that you state CRILCs are places where vulnerability is necessary. And, and folks, in case you missed it, let me reiterate, um, it's culturally relevant, intentional literacy communities. All right, so that these are places where vulnerability is necessary. Uh, why is that the case? And what is an example of this vulnerability that you speak of? Yeah, right, I mean, again, right, sort of my my old self now, sort of looking ahead to the, the educator I'm becoming every day. Right. You cannot get anywhere without being vulnerable. Right. We can just be sort of reactive and responding every day or right. Like we can put a little on the line and admit our mistakes. Right. Get to really know kids. And I also think that we shouldn't expect kids to be vulnerable. Right. They come in with all of their stuff, particularly for kids of color. Right. They might have been harmed or things have happened to them. We can't just be like, tell me all of your pains and your worries and it's all going to be OK. That I think is false. And like, it's just not OK. But I think if we sort of start with ourselves and think about like all the ways we have been harmed first by schooling or whatever else or literacy practices. Right. And then like be real honest with kids where it makes sense not to over emote or to do those things, but to say, right, like I have had, I have engaged in harmful practices in my past, right? Like I've done things that have not been in the best interest of children and I am sorry. 
right? Like um, I think being accountable, making really um, meaningful apologies for the harm that we have done, um, saying it to children, right? I don't think we say enough to children, right? We don't apologize enough. It's like, we're afraid <laughs> of children. But again, like we are in the the work of being raised by young people and children. And so like, I want them to be able to acknowledge when they have messed up, right? We mess up all the time. And so vulnerability is key, right? Like when we mess up, we need to fix it and to fix it immediately because otherwise, right? These kids move on the next year or they go out into the world and they carry that with them. And I just, again, right? Like, do we want that going with them or do we want to just stop and like do our best to fix it while we have the opportunity? Yeah, and you get into the importance of restorative practices. And there were some to-dos um, that you challenged folks to to process uh, in terms of re- reflection questions that will unveil some realities in terms yeah. of things that we engage in in the way that perhaps we, we've harmed others and uh, the fact that we do need to consider some repair. Uh, thank you for doing that. I, think I mean, we're human beings, so it's going to happen, right? Like we just, it happens. It unfortunately happens. And I think, right, like, who do you want to be, right? Like, who do you want to be? Saeed Jones said, like, who do you want to be when the morning light finds you? And right, like, I want to be a person who actually believes in restoration, who believes in justice, who believes in like making it right and making it right for like people right now, because like, we ain't going to live forever. We're not, <laughs> we're just not. That is the reality. Yeah, I, I definitely. I, th- I think about kids that I, I cause harm to, you know, and there's certain ones that come to mind. There, there's others that I likely cause harm to and I don't, you know, yeah. I, mean, I was I probably not even aware of that. Right. But there's ones that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm clear about, you know, in terms of my my approach uh, as a teacher, my approach as a, as a school leader, especially when I was overseeing discipline and some of the, you know, like getting sucked into the vacuum of the system, even though like I, I knew and I was opposed, right. At least I was cognitively opposed, but then when I was in it. Right. That's like, I, that's what is yo. hard because like the system, like Miriam Kaba, right. The pur- purpose of the system is to do what it does. And so, right. When you're in it, you're like, you're supposed to write these children up, send them over there, push them out, exclude them, call their parents, tell them they got to come and get them. Like all of these things. Right. If you, but it also, I've noticed for myself that you got to like actively do it all the time because it's like unlearning all the time. Like you got you to oh, like the- detox yourself every single minute of the day. Listen, I was AP in a school in my city, and I was so excited to be there. I was elated. It was a joy for me to be there. You know what I'm saying? Like, I coming back to the hometown, like literally the hood I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And over time, I, you know, even though I came in like high spirits, like we're going to change this, we're going to change that. That wasn't the reality. You know, I guess I was more out of touch with how strong the system was and and how I would say that's interesting keep going I'm sorry I cut you off and and how much rewiring I needed oh yes yes it's like the I I, same so much of that resonates because yes you go into it being like I'm gonna do this I'm gonna be different I'm gonna try these things and then you realize it's like you are one person. People are comfortable with systems too, right? Like yes, yes. When a child is when a child is not doing what you need them to do, it's easy 
to be like, you got to go. I just spent my time in like the school where I was sitting in the office. All of these black boys just coming in, coming in, coming in. And they would sit with the secretary and they would, the same reasons, right? Um, not letting other people learn, not doing these things. There was all the things that they were not doing. And you just are like, oh, this, and they were like little. It was from K to six. I think I saw a child from every single grade within a span of an hour, right? And I was like, these are somebody's children. These are right. someone's children. And I get it that they are like doing whatever it is that they're in school. But why don't we find out like really why before we're so quick to just be like, get out. Like we love kicking kids out of school. We love it. Right. We love right. it. It's awful. Right. Yeah. I, it, you know, I left that school and I went to, then we moved from Massachusetts to Texas and I was in a Montessori school, public mm-hmm. Montessori. And, and that's where, I mean, I still went through some things there because again, this the whole notion of like rewiring yeah. your understanding of how school operates and how you treat kids and how you treat kids of color. And you know, whether that's like conscious or unconscious, you know, but like the manifestation is still the reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so like it took took like me being in that environment and over time like seeing like, oh, wait a second, like there's there's a whole different vibe here in terms of how we do things and you know and, and with this Montessori approach. Not to say that like that happens in all my even in that mm-hmm. school, like we we had our issues or whatnot, but it 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 wasn't as prevalent as was the other school. Like there was a lot more like, all right, we're gonna work with the kids in a different way. We're gonna do a lot more restorative practices. We got some oh, we got the garden, you know, in the back of the classroom and you mm-hmm. could go out there and like they can have some time to connect with nature and kind of reset and whatnot. And so being in that environment, like, really helped, it helped me to soften up. That's, that's kind of like the easy way I could say it. Like, I, I came from this hard line of like, yo, nah, like, right. This is the highway. It's my way. It's my way. I I literally used to say, like, when I was a basketball coach, I literally used to say, I got a particular kid in mind. I I still feel bad to this day. And I, I like, you know. I got to figure out his contact. I got to reach out and apologize. Oh, yeah. Then I got another kid that I coached in another school. I got to reach out and apologize, but I don't remember his name. But nonetheless. But they remember, like, right? Like whenever you do, oh, it yeah. the right time. That's what I try to also remember is that like, it's always the right time to like make it right. Um, and it'll mean something, right? Yeah. Like just, and even if you model it for, for those kids, like, you know, we mess up. We're human beings. So you, you were talking earlier, you mentioned kind of like, your old self, you know, versus kind of who you are now. And it made me think about something you wrote in the book in terms of your learning experience and what you were reading in school versus the text and content you were exposed to in home, including Ebony, Jet, um, and then, you know, all, all types of like wonderful literary works, right? You had the magazines sitting over there and you used to dust in that area, but then you would... <laughs> You know, you had these strong texts that that were available to you. And, and so you had mentioned, you know, Edith Wharton and, and Kerouac and, you know, that and yeah. that's what you oh, were reading in school. And so it makes me wonder if if you were in school right now or, if, you know, we transport you back then and like, you know, there was an opportunity to change what you were reading in schools and there was a teacher who's like now nah, well, you know i'm taking your feedback what do you want to read what what are some of the texts that you you as a student would say hey you know teacher x i would like to read i want the class to read the following text 
Oh yeah, you know. Oh, like we're so we're going back to like high school. Yes, yes. <laughs> Nineteen ninety, like two, ni- early nineties, like the best decade ever. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. See. You know, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think that I would read. Like, I don't think we read any work by black people. I know you so, said that. And you said that. Yeah, the- right. I would love it if we had read like some Gloria Naylor, right? Women at Brewster Place. I love her. Some Octavia Butler. Um, some poetry. I just. I mean, and this is what it's even things that we were reading at home, right? Some history, some something, right? Like my world was like, okay, you know, Jet, you're going to get like a little bit of condensed text. You're going to get a little bit more in ebony, but any of those things, right? Any black people, black people on posters, right? Like there were black people or even learning about the history of black people in Lexington, Kentucky, right? Because like Kentucky was, um, was at the t- sort of like in the South, right? It was right above, right below Ohio. So there was a whole history of people who were enslaved, but also lots of people who were freeing themselves, right? You just had to make it to Ohio. You just had to get uh, across. Um, and that is what is incredible, right? Like maybe that's why we all try to get out of there. <laughs> mm, mm. We're getting out of Kentucky. But um, like any of that history, I didn't learn any of that history during school. And I think it's really important for Black kids, particularly in that context, in the South and rural areas, to know that y'all got a history. You've got a lineage of fugitivity and escape, and you can get out of here, or you can be free in yourself. But this is your history. Um, so I would have made sure that those books were t- were being taught. And maybe it's different. I mean, I'm, I'm about to go home to Kentucky, so I'm going to look and see if I can find it. I would not be surprised if they're reading the same books. Right. Well, let's hope that's not the case, and let's hope that let's the hope. work that you and others been doing has disrupted oh, that. Right. Yes. That's why we do the work. I mean, that's every day. I'm just um, reminded of that. And my partner said, you know, like every day someone is waking up and being like, oh my God, there's such a thing as disrupt text. So like every day, the possibility exists that maybe someone can do something different. That's right. That's right. You know, I didn't have this question prepared, but it came to mind as I continue to look at your book and how your name's written. And it's a question that I had asked Sheldon. What does the middle, what what does this middle initial, what this N, what does it stand for? Oh yeah, Nicole. Yeah. Okay, Nicole. okay. <laughs> I you know, I I gotta I, I just see stuff like this and I'm like, I <laughs> Yeah, it's like what I, it, mm-hmm. I gotta know. I'm like, but when people I, are like calling me out, my full government, I'm like, something's going. On. I, I'm like, I just know where it's Kim Barker, you know. Yes, now, I, right. now I see this end here, and I'm like, wait, I don't even know who you are. I know my professional name. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, if if you had the opportunity to have lunch with any author that are alive, who would it be and why? Oh my god. That's a great one. Um, you know what? Like, I think about I would have dinner with Adrian Marie Brown. I love them. I just like everything resonates. I feel like at the right moment, the right time, emergent strategy, all the strategies just like speak to me in ways that I'm like, all right, let me get myself together. Um, has really impacted how I think about organizing and working with people and thinking about the purpose of why we do it. So yes, um, Adrian Marie Brown, for sure. So, and pretty sure you referenced Brown in your book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I love it. Like, this is why it's really great to be a learner because like, I didn't know about Adrian Marie Brown like five years ago. 
maybe six years ago, maybe before the pandemic. I don't know. I feel like the pandemic happened and then like everything changed, but only recently, I think in the last five years. And, you know, like we're always open to, to learning new things. So I'm really happy that, you know, I found that book and I found their work and everything else. That's right. That's right. So for those who are listening, what is the message of encouragement you want to offer them? Yeah. You know what? Like keep going and bring somebody with you. I like that. I like that. Keep going and bring somebody with you. While you bring them with you, folks, make sure you give them a copy of Literacy is Liberation, Working Towards Justice Through Culturally Relevant Teaching by Kimberly N. Parker. (laughs) Hey, it's been a pleasure. This is so wonderful. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Listen, it was worth the wait. It was (laughs) worth the wait, you know? emailing you and chasing you down but uh, you know what i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm happy we made this work too before no, 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 the year no. ended look at no, us no. listen <laughs> you don't you don't have to apologize because the, the opportunity to sit here and hear from you and uh, tap into your insight um have this you know some perspective that perhaps i'm not you know necessarily thinking about at the moment it it helps me it, it challenges me it, it encourages me and I need that. You know, I want to grow, I want to learn. This is what our classroom's about. Yay. And I, you know, I'm just gonna say I can't wait for your book. I'm ready. Oh, yes, I'm ready yes, to yes. read it. I'm yes. ready, ready, ready. Yes. And end of January. Blueing tears. End of January. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm ready. We're coming. We're coming. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Kim, thanks for your time. Yeah. Um, you know, keep pressing on, stay encouraged in the work that you're doing. You're having a huge impact in this world. You're having a huge impact in, in the schools in which you're serving in. And uh, we're, we're fortunate to be able to witness all of your greatness. You know what? Thank you. Same here. Same. I'm reflecting it all back to you. As always, your engagement in our classroom is greatly appreciated. Be sure to subscribe, rate the show, and write a review. Finally, For resources to help you understand the intersection of race, bias, education, and society, go to multiculturalclassroom.com. Peace and love from your host, Roberto Germán.